0: let's go ahead and begin with prayer our gracious heavenly father bless this lesson as we study this material we pray that you would enable us to have christ-like discernment even the mind of christ to distinguish between what is clean and what is unclean between what is true and what is false that we would embrace you as the true God and that truth which you have revealed in your Son and in your Word. And that that anointing, that spirit of truth would enable us to hate all that is false, every false way. We pray that where there are falsehoods and false doctrines, that you would even work these things together for good to strengthen our knowledge of the truth and even that you would bring those who promote false doctrines to that same knowledge of the truth that they may be, as Paul says, set free from the bondage of Satan. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our lecture series on the Federal Vision and also, this is our second lecture on James Jordan. And the title of of last time, uh, the lecture we had last time was Regeneration Redefined. Regeneration Redefined. And so this is Regeneration Redefined Part Two. Again, studying the teachings of federal visionist James Jordan just to review a bit, we saw last time that James Jordan is a well-known teacher and author within the Christian Reconstructionist and Federal Vision movements, respectively, and that he specializes in the field of biblical interpretation. He's written a number of books. He was a former student of Norman Shepherd. He signed the 2007 Joint Federal Vision Statement. He utilized... Biblical Horizons, which is an organization that he founded, which produced a newsletter on a regular basis. He utilized that means to produce a number of resources that are still available online at the Biblical Horizons website. He also is listed as Scholar-in-Residence Emeritus at the Theopolis Institute in Birmingham, Alabama, which has ties to a number of CREC, Pastors and scholars. The president is Peter Lighthart, a federal visionist advocate, and uh, it's right nearby Rich Lusk's CREC congregation. Jordan was honored in 2011 with a Feshrift with essays in his honor, and among the authors were a number of federal visionists, including Doug Wilson. And Wilson currently offers James Jordan's 11 part. Hermeneutics course how to read the Bible on the Canon Press app so if you pay the subscription every month you have access to that course how to read the Bible so obviously Wilson and his group thinks that James Jordan is the guy that you want to have teach you how to read the Bible he also has numerous lectures and talks on the Canon Press app on Old Testament studies New Testament studies various theological topics including a series advocating Pado communion which is a topic we're going to get to, God willing, very soon. Now, in January 2003, James Jordan published an article entitled Thoughts on Sovereign Grace and Regeneration, Some Tentative Explorations. In that article, he seeks to defend federal vision assertions regarding baptismal regeneration by, in his words, attacking uses the word attack. What's he attacking? He's attacking the historical, biblical, and confessional definition of personal regeneration and positing a radical new definition. Now, we've seen those quotations in the previous lecture. We're not going to go over that information again, but let me just give you the quotation from your handout, which is listed under 2b. Quote, I want to take up the question of regeneration as it is commonly understood in Calvinistic circles since the time of the Synod of Dort. My thesis is that the Bible does not teach that some people receive incorruptible new hearts, that some people are as individuals regenerated, End quote. So it's very clear, Jordan is attacking and seeking to discredit the Reformed doctrine, and I would say this is just the basic evangelical doctrine, Bible-believing doctrine, Christian doctrine, of regeneration, personal, individual regeneration. So he's denying that some people receive incorruptible new hearts. He's denying that some people are as individuals regenerated. Now, why does Jordan do this? We saw last time. It's because... When he comes to Paul's epistles, Jordan sees that Paul sometimes addresses the entire churches as elect and regenerate. Paul's writing to Ephesus or Philippi, Corinth. He he addresses these entire churches at times as if they were elect and regenerate. And he says, therefore, these terms must apply equally to all baptized persons. Of course, he's a paedo-baptist. So now he's saying that the whole church, all the baptized members, are elect and regenerate, according to these statements of Paul. That includes the infants. But then he redefines what it means to be elect and regenerate. He says it's not to be elect unto salvation and final perseverance, such that heaven is a lock, but rather to be chosen for church membership, and yet you could later fall away. And so, First Corinthians one, Ephesians one, these statements about being elect and sanctified and and uh, chosen and from the foundation of the world predestined. He says that is a predestination merely unto church membership, from which one could fall away and go to hell. We saw the citations, and you can see them in your handout. Uh, We then saw that according to Jordan, all baptized church members, including those who ultimately go to heaven and those who ultimately go to hell, are equally elected, regenerated, and justified. So he's not saying, well, everybody in the church is elect in this general sense, but the ones who eventually get to heaven have a unique election, a unique sense of regeneration. He's saying, no, in fact, the person who is a member of the church who eventually goes to hell and the person who's a member of the church who eventually goes to heaven are at their baptism equally elected, equally regenerated and justified such that those who later fail to persevere actually lose their election, regeneration, and justification. We saw the quotations there that are listed in your handout. Next, we saw that according to Jordan, all baptized church members are redeemed by Christ's atoning death. Some are redeemed permanently, that is, those who persevere, and others are redeemed temporarily, that is, those who fall away. And again, you're seeing here not only a denial of the biblical doctrine of regeneration, but you're also seeing a denial of the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And Hebrews 7 Verse 25, that Christ saves to the uttermost all who come to God through him and ever lives to intercede for them so that they don't fall away. Philippians 1 6, that if God begins a good work in you, he promises to complete that good work even to the day of Christ. We saw in John 6, verse 39 and 40, that Those who believe on Christ and come to Him by faith are those whom the Father has drawn, and those whom the Father has drawn will be raised up at the last day. So to be truly regenerated on the front end guarantees that you will be raised up in glory as as a believer in the world to come. From beginning to end, there is that perseverance of the saints, that eternal security rightly understood. We saw John 10 verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verses 27 through 29, we're told that Christ's sheep hear his voice, they follow him. Now, according to Jordan, those who hear his voice and follow him are a mixed multitude, right? These are the people that profess their faith and are baptized along with their children. And they enter into the covenant, they enter into the race, but some fall out and others persevere to the end. But Jesus says that the sheep that he's speaking of is not the sheep of the visible church, but the sheep of his elect, because he says the sheep he's talking about here that he died for shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of his hand. So, yeah, there's a general sense of being a sheep, visible church membership, but in terms of the scriptural doctrine, there are elect sheep, and if you are truly regenerated, you can know for certain that you're elect even unto final perseverance. So Jordan's denying that. We saw in addition, point number six, according to Jordan, the Holy Spirit mysteriously causes some but not all regenerate persons to persevere. So, you know, what is different? Why do some persevere and others don't? Well, he tries to maintain that it's God's grace because he doesn't want to fall into just flat-out purebred Pelagianism and works salvation. So he tries to say, well, it's because of a mysterious wrestling of the Spirit. Unfortunately, there's no sure indication of whether the Spirit is going to wrestle with me or not wrestle with me. In this life, there's nothing that he says that's different between the person that later has that wrestling and goes to heaven versus the person who doesn't have that wrestling and doesn't go to heaven. There's nothing in your present condition that can be any sure indication of your future destiny. Ergo, you can't have assurance of your perseverance. You can persevere, but you can't know that you're going to persevere, which again is the the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. One of its most diabolical doctrines if not the worst but he says that it's it's this mysterious work of the spirit now we read those quotations you can go back to the previous uh, lecture or just read them on your handout but really he precludes the possibility of gaining personal assurance of salvation by way of self-examination i can't look at my heart in light of God's word, and say, God's brought me from death to life because I love the brethren, I believe in Christ, I'm striving to keep his commandments, 1 John, I can't know that I have eternal life, I can't know that I'm going to persevere finally, I can't know that God has begun a work now that will continue to the day of Christ Jesus, I can't examine anything in my present condition that guarantees my future eternal destiny in heaven. I can't make my calling and election sure. I can't examine myself to see if I'm in the faith. I mean, basically, I can't do what the Bible commands me to do. And the quotation that I'll leave you with on this point is under point six, section F. He says, people don't know because they can't know whether these promises apply to them or not, end quote. So how do you like that? No way of finding assurance of salvation. Well, let's pivot now to number seven. As we continue our discussion of regeneration redefined. And this is my summary and then we'll get into his direct quotations. According to Jordan regeneration does not involve the permanent spiritual transformation of the sinner's fallen human nature. In other words it's not the sinner's nature that's changed. It's not as Jordan would say a metaphysical change, not a change to one's nature but only a temporary change in the status of the sinner's relationship to God. In other words, it's not metaphysical, it's relational. Your nature doesn't change at your conversion or whatever he wants to call it. Your nature doesn't change at your so-called regeneration, but rather it's just a change in the status of your relationship to God. The continuance of which hinges on your perseverance. So regeneration doesn't change who and what you are. It just changes your identity in relation to God. It changes your status. And you only get to keep that status if you persevere. And there's no guarantee that you will persevere unless the Spirit mystically, mysteriously wrestles with you versus other people. You know, no way to know. Let's look at these quotations first. Quote, James Jordan. Is it God's plan that all who receive a metaphysical new birth will also continue to the end. In other words, he's saying, is the Reformed view correct? Because that's the Reformed view. Or, is it God's plan that some who receive such a new birth will fall away and be damned? If we conceive of this new birth as a metaphysical change, change of nature... It does become possible to think that anyone receiving it must persevere because he or she has become a different kind of human being. He goes on. If, however, the new birth is entrance into a new relationship with God, it is clear that a person loses his new life if he apostatizes from that relationship with God. End quote. So if it's just a relational status... You know, you're searching for a product on Amazon and you hit Prime and then, you know, the status of your search changes to only things that you can ship according to Prime, free shipping, one or two day shipping. But then if you hit it, if you tick that button again, then it goes off of that and it doesn't offer only items that are shipped by Amazon Prime, okay? It, that's what he's saying. Regeneration is just a status change. You you hit the button, you undo what you did. You do it, you undo it. It's, it's very simple because regeneration can easily be undone because it's not a change in your nature as if you're becoming a new type of human at your regeneration and then you lose your salvation and you become a different type of human and, and you're just morphing like the Incredible Hulk back and forth. But instead... He's saying it's just a status. It's just a status. Which I guess makes baptism a status symbol. But in any event, it's just your status. Listen to the next quote. Here's Jordan. Quote, Perseverance unto the end is ultimately, a co- of course, a matter of God's predestination. But those who persevere do not do so because they have been given more at the starting line. Because they have received some kind of permanent inward metaphysical change. Rather, they persevere because God's spirit continues to wrestle with them to the end. They persevere not because of anything inside themselves, whether their own power or some infusion from God, but because God maintains his personal relationship with them to the end, because they do not reject the favor and gifts that God truly gave them, end quote. So he keeps trying to say, oh, well, it's the grace of God, but... If it's the grace of God, then how can you say he gave equal grace to everybody? See, he's in the horns of a dilemma. He's trying to merge Roman Catholicism with Calvinism. He's trying as best as he can so that God gives everyone the same grace and, and some regenerate people lose it and some people go to heaven and God predestined it. Okay, so God predestined that some people would persevere and others wouldn't. But God could predestine people to earn their salvation, right? I mean, you, you could try to propose that just because God predestined it doesn't mean that the means to the end of perseverance was gracious, right? You could, you could be like Thomas Aquinas and believe in predestination, but you believe in justification by faith plus works. So that, that doesn't really fix it. So then he says, well, it's because with the ones who persevere, God wrestles with them to the end, And he maintains his personal relationship with them to the end. But then it raised the question why doesn't he do that for everybody? Why does he regenerate everybody and then wrestle with some and only maintain his personal relationship with some in such a way that none of them have assurance? All of them know that at any moment, God could withdraw his spirit and withdraw the wrestling. And withdraw his personal relationship from them at any moment, without any, you know, without it uh, being impacted in any way by themselves, and they could go to hell. Well, he doesn't want to say that either, right? What, What kind of hell on earth gospel are we talking about here? Okay. So then he says at the end to try to to try to save it from that, he says, "Well, God maintains his personal relationship with them to the end." And here he's got to add works back in. Here he's got to put it back in your court so that you don't just despair at some arbitrary predestination that, has, that you have no ability to discern one way or the other. He says, because they do not reject the favor and gifts that God truly gave them. So now he's coming out of the closet. Why does God strive? Why does God maintain personal relationship with some and not others? Because of something in them. He tries to say it's not something in them. But at the end of the day, he has to add that. Because of them. Because they don't reject God's favor and gifts. So at the end of the day, we're back to works. We're back to Pelagianism. We're back to God gives everybody an equal chance and you persevered. Congratulations. You did it. You didn't reject the favor and gifts that God truly gave. You see this often with people who deny the biblical doctrines of grace, they're always trying to present works salvation and uh, human effort in, in the most subtle way possible. So notice he doesn't say they did something. He's like, well, they just didn't omit. They didn't neglect the favor and gifts. They didn't reject. It's something they didn't do. It really isn't works. It's just that they didn't do this really bad thing of rejecting God's favor at the end of the day it's works it's works it's works and it always will be works because there's only one gospel and any denial of that leads to works in salvation another quote letter C Jordan some in the church endeavor to be faithful and to live by faith in God and God's promises others do not God has given his promises to all he has claimed them all in other words, God has claimed all baptized people equally. He has elected and called them all into fellowship with His Son. But not all are making their calling and election sure by persevering. End quote. Isn't this interesting? 2 Peter 1, when it says, make your calling and election sure, okay? that text is not saying that the certainty of your calling and election is on account of you, that you are to take something that is uncertain, and by your efforts to add to your faith, virtue and grace and, and, and all these things, that by your efforts, you're going to take something that's uncertain and nail it down and solidify it and make it certain. That is not what Peter is saying. When he says make your calling and election sure, he's saying come to the, come to the assurance that you have been saved by this certain salvation in all things secure. The certainty that we're striving for is a certainty in our own mind that we've been saved. It's not that the everlasting certainty of our salvation is something that we are to produce. We're just seeking to understand and know that that certain salvation is ours. You follow me? But the way Jordan is taking it is that God has elected every baptized person, but not all of them are making their calling and election sure by persevering. In other words, by persevering, I make it certain. By persevering, I make my salvation certain. Not just that I know it to be certain, but its certainty depends upon my persevering. Now, Christians persevere to the end, right? So if the certainty of my salvation is not solidified and established until I have persevered to the end, then my salvation has no certainty until the end. And therefore I have, once again, no assurance in this life that I'm going to heaven until I get to the judgment. Is that the New Testament picture? Is that even, you know, the the federal visionists are always telling us they, they want to give us more assurance. But what they've done is they've assured every baptized person of salvation, but redefine salvation into something that is unsure and unstable and unknowable till the last day. So don't tinker with the gospel. It, it all comes crashing down. You know, it's like Jenga, the federal visionists. Are, they think they can take this piece out and they can take that piece out. They're nudging it and Doug Wilson and James Jordan and Rich Lusk and and, and there they are at the bottom. I can get this out. And the whole thing comes crashing down. That's the federal vision. Point number eight. In order to defend his attack on biblical and confessional orthodoxy, Jordan is forced to radically reinterpret many familiar passages of Scripture. In order to defend his attack on biblical and confessional orthodoxy, Jordan is forced to radically reinterpret many familiar passages of Scripture. Now, b- before we dive into this, let me just tie up one loose end. He denied that regeneration is metaphysical, that it changes our nature. Let me just give you a, f- a few proof texts for that. Rapid fire. Maybe jot these down or just... I mean, most of you, you should, th- these are things that, that most Christians are familiar with. Ephesians 2. Okay, verse 5, he made us alive together in Christ. What does that mean? Well, by nature we were children of wrath, and now our nature has changed. Jesus with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And we'll get into this in a moment. I'm not going to go into it uh, full tilt here, but notice when he talks about you need to be born again by the Spirit, he says, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit that's dealing with our nature a fleshly carnal nature a spiritual spirit-filled nature again second corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation old things have passed away behold all things have become new that's not just you know ticking the box pushing the button changing a status of relationship That's a new creation, a new nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, notice it's something that he is. It's a different nature, it's a new nature. He who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We could go on, but some of the passages we would like to go to are mentioned here in this next section. So in order to defend his attack on the truth, Jordan is forced to radically reinterpret many familiar passages of Scripture. Now he does this... For starters, by redefining what the Bible means when it speaks of regeneration. And if you've taken time to listen to the Doug Wilson, Rich Lusk dual lecture Q&A from back a few years, I can't remember what year it was, but they did one called Federal Vision Dark or Light with uh, Lusk and Wilson interacting. They interact quite a bit on this paper and on the the definition of regeneration. So it's interesting. It's not just Jordan that's involved here in this discussion. But Jordan says this, quote, "...as regards regeneration, the meaning of this term in Reformed theology bears virtually no resemblance to its meaning in the Bible." Wow. He goes on, "...regeneration in the Bible is used only in Matthew 19, 27 through 30, where it refers to the new creation that Jesus has come to establish." It's true that that's what Matthew 19 is talking about, but is that the only instance when the Bible refers to the new birth, regeneration? We're going to have to look at that. He goes on, In the regeneration, and specifically the apostolic age, the disciples who have left everything will rule the twelve tribes, ministering to them as true servant kings until the end of the old age in A.D. 70. Cross-reference James 1.1, 1 Peter 1, 1, 1.1. 1. So he's a partial preterist. If we had time, we'd launch off into that false uh, interpretation there. The regeneration is talking about the world to come, not the New Testament age. But again, these things, uh, we just don't have time to refute that teaching. He goes on, Titus 3.5 associates baptism with entry into this new creation, into regeneration. Thus, in the Bible, regeneration denotes the new historical epoch inaugurated at Pentecost and is a synonym of new creation. In dogmatic Reformed theology, especially after the Arminian controversy, regeneration came to be used for an inner work of grace in the heart of a person which enables him to turn to God in saving faith." So he says, you've got Matthew 19 which is the regeneration, which is corporate. He thinks it's the New Testament church. We would say it's the world to come, but either way, it's not personal regeneration. Titus 3.5 talks about the washing of regeneration, which, as we said before, you can, from the standpoint of Greek grammar, you can flip a coin as to whether it's saying that regeneration is a washing or that the washing of baptism is regeneration. So, theologically, from other scriptures, we're obviously going to say that regeneration is a washing. We're not going to embrace baptismal regeneration on the flip of a coin. But that's what he's basically saying. Those are the only instances. So, the regeneration is the New Testament church. Baptism brings you into it. Therefore, baptismal regeneration. But is that the only place where the Bible speaks of regeneration? It's only a, a shallow method of searching that leads you to that conclusion. John chapter 3, we're, we're all familiar with this. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, anageno'. anna meaning either from above or again, in this case because it's a second birth if you read the context, It's best understood as being born again or being born again from above. But the idea of again or re is definitely at the center of the context. So verse 3, unless one is regena'o, regena'oed, regenerated. And notice it's one, unless one doesn't say unless the whole nation of Israel, the whole world, the whole corporate body of God's faithful, baptized. No. He says unless one, unless an individual, unless one is regenerated, he, not they, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man, not all Israel, how can a man be born? When he is old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And again, that phrase second time points us to the fact that being born again is not just from above, that's a legitimate inference from Anna, the prefix, but but the the context here is emphasizing that it's again. It's a regenao, a second birth, or really a, a second conception. The word can be used either way. Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is a pivot to Ezekiel 36. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, plural, you, plural, must be born again. So he begins with the individual, and then he says it's true for everybody. It's true for all Israel not that it's fundamentally corporate it's fundamentally about one and about he and about thee. but then he expands it to you you all this is true of all god's people they all come into the world conceived and born in sin they all need to be regenerated born again that's not regeneration it is regeneration somehow it didn't make jordan's list we saw 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. How's that not regeneration? It's recreation. They're recreated in the image of God. We could go to Ephesians and Colossians for that. In in holiness and righteousness, and knowledge. After the image of God, that's a recreation, a regeneration. We see it in James, chapter one, verse eight. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth, same idea, by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Regeneration. And 1 Peter 1, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. Why doesn't that make the list? See, These guys are shady. It's like a, a used car salesman. When you go through the, um, the Carfax report, why didn't he mention that? What about this accident? Jordan's not being forthright with us here, or he just didn't, didn't do his diligence. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Wait, he just denied that people are born again with an incorruptible seed. Nature. Oops. Through the Word of God. I thought it was baptism. I thought baptism regenerated us with a corruptible heart that we could lose. Wait a second. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God which lives and abides forever because all flesh is as grass, so on and so forth. The Word of the Lord abides forever. Now this is the Word which by the Gospel was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Why aren't any of these passages in his list? I don't know, but it's very sad. Anyway, he reinterprets the biblical presentation of regeneration. He also reinterprets a number of passages. So let's look at a few of these, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. This is the famous passage about God taking out the old heart of stone and putting in a new heart of flesh. We would acknowledge that this passage is dealing with Israel as a corporate entity. We see the subsequent chapter talking about the valley of dry bones and revival corporately among Israel, raised to life from, again, from a valley of dry bones. So we're not denying that there's a corporate element here. We're not denying that because Jesus, having preached the gospel of individual regeneration to Nicodemus, does then broaden it to, you all need to be raised up and given new life. And the church as a whole needs to be revived, okay? So we're not denying that there's a corporate trajectory. But what, what he's saying is that it's exclusively corporate. It's not any individual being regenerated and having their old heart replaced with a new heart. Listen to Jordan. Quote, The heart of stone in Ezekiel 36... Hold on a second. Let me just stop here for a second. You're all sitting down for this, but if you weren't, I would ask you to sit down for this because this is going to get... Some of these interpretations are really going to... Wow. I forgot about that. Okay. So just brace yourself. Quote, The heart of stone in Ezekiel 36 is not a hard or petrified heart, Inside individual human beings but refers to the Word made stone. The ten words in the most holy of the tabernacle slash temple. Okay. You follow him? The heart of stone in Ezekiel 36 is the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone inside the Ark of the Covenant. He goes on, at Sinai the Word became stone and dwelt among us and we beheld God's glory at Sinai. He goes on, What could be better than the firmness and protection of the Word made stone? Only the incarnate Word made flesh. Some of you saw where he was going here. He goes on. Who will bring the Spirit in fullness? Yahweh is predicting a new exodus. At the first exodus, they were given a heart of stone at the center of their lives. Now a more wonderful heart of flesh is predicted. End quote. So, is it even worth interacting with that? I mean that is so far a field of anything that's remotely connected with the text. This is James Jordan. If you're not familiar with James Jordan, we didn't have time to give examples, but if you read his book through new eyes, this is what Greg Bonson utterly criticized to the nth degree. Hermeneutical or exegetical maximalism where just we're just flying all around the room with biblical concepts and ideas rather than taking the text at face value again we we preach from the song of solomon this morning we have no problem with biblical imagery but this is this is crazy this is this is the kind of exegetical peyote that you will find from james jordan and it's amazing that canon press says this is the guy to teach you how to read your bible very frightening okay john 3 1 through 8 Nicodemus and the new birth listen to Jordan's interpretation quote John 3 however is not about how to be saved from hell Nicodemus is not an unregenerate man in need of rescue he is a believer who is seeking to learn about the new kingdom that Jesus is announcing that kingdom is not the realm of personal salvation but the new creation though in the future all those who find salvation will have to find it in this new creation for the old creation will pass away He goes on, entrance into the new creation. Thus is what John 3 is about. That entrance is by baptism. Water baptism. He goes on, spiritual birth is the birth into the new creation. It is not a matter of an internal change in the individual, but the movement of the whole individual and or culture. You see where Christian Reconstructionism leads when it gets involved in gospel doctrine. Pretty soon the individual is irrelevant. It's all about the culture. We're going to, you know, from the Reagan revolution onward, we're going to transform the culture. That's what John 3, that's what the whole Bible's about. Amazing. Uh, The movement of the whole individual and or culture into the new sphere of the Spirit in the new age that dawned on Pentecost in Acts 2. Notice, he writes, that you must be born from above. Verse 7, is addressed in the plural. Well, we saw that was just the last reference. The first two were individual. Jesus is saying, writes Jordan, that Israel must enter into the regeneration. He has also called Nicodemus as an individual to make this transition to be born from above. Yet even here, Jesus addresses Nicodemus as the representative of Israel, as the teacher of Israel, verse 10. Okay, that's totally arbitrary. Two out of the three references are individual. One is corporate. And he says, well, the individual is just mentioned uh, in a corporate way. Totally arbitrary. He goes on. Was Nicodemus a saved, believing man before he met Jesus? Yes. Was Nicodemus on the road to heaven? Yes. Did Nicodemus need to be born again, born from above, if he was going to enter the new kingdom? Yes. Jesus in John 3 is not providing the order of individual salvation. He is not discussing how an individual person comes to have a saving relationship with God. That, right off the bat, red flags. Red flags. Doug Wilson. This is the guy that should tell you how to read the Bible. Canon press app. Let's learn from James Jordan to see the word through new eyes. These new eyes are blind. He goes on, rather he is discussing the arrival of salvation in history. At that time, a salvation that would bring with a whole new order of existence for God's people that would bring with it a whole new order of existence for God's people so that's his reinterpretation of John 3 how about Ephesians 2 we just read that how does he respond to Paul saying that we were dead in sins by nature children of wrath made alive in Christ Jordan quote the lost person is in fact not dead the lost person is, in fact, not dead. Bible says dead. He says not dead. That reminds us of the Garden of Eden, right? You will not surely die. Ephesians 2, he's surely dead. James Jordan, oh, he's not surely dead. He's alive. The lost person is, in fact, not dead. He is alive. He can hear and respond, and he, in fact, does hear and respond either positively or negatively. Dead in trespasses and sins is not a metaphysical statement but is a way of saying that the man is personally estranged from God. The man does not need to be made alive in any metaphysical sense, but rather he needs to enter into personal fellowship with God. The new life that he needs is not metaphysical, but relational. End quote. And why is that? Because if it's metaphysical, he says that leans toward perseverance of the saints. But if it's relational, you can lose it. God will just flip the switch if you sin too much and reject Him and turn away. So, uh, he says it's not metaphysical, even though Paul says, by nature, children of wrath. Not metaphysical somehow. He reinterprets Romans 8, the golden chain of salvation. This is the classic text for the doctrines of grace, of why the doctrines of grace are so valuable, because they promote assurance of salvation. Romans 8, verse 30, Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. So, if you've been called by the gospel and brought to faith, and you've been justified by faith, then you can be assured that based on the predestinating will of God that you will be glorified in the world to come. Now Jordan says, well, it's, it says glorified in the past tense, so he thinks glorified refers to your adoption. And so he, he leaves it open-ended. He says you've been predestined, called, justified, and adopted as glorious children of God, but you can lose it. So The whole point of the verse is to nail it down, that you can't lose it. That's the whole point of the chapter. The reason glorified is in the past tense is to reinforce the fact that it's just as certain as what has already taken place. Just like Isaiah 53. Isaiah is speaking about future events, the coming of Christ and His work on the cross, but he uses the past tense to reinforce that it's a sure thing. But Jordan reinterprets glorification here. He says it's not heaven, that's not a sure thing, but you're temporarily adopted. So hang in there and keep persevering or you'll be cast off as a child of wrath at some future time. Listen to what he says, quote, with this in mind, it is perfectly possible to take Paul's statement, Romans 8.30, in an ecclesial sense. In other words, church membership. He says, quote, God has foreknown and predestined certain people to be called into his church slash covenant and has granted them justification and glorification in Christ. This gift has been given, but Paul does not say that all who receive this gift will continue in it. They should continue in it. What an empty, what a word of empty comfort. They should, they should continue in it. God wants them to continue in it, but God may not have decreed that all of them continue in these blessings "...they might fall away, which is why the epistles, especially the epistles to the Hebrews, abound in encouragements to persevere. In no way does an understanding does such an understanding threaten the Reformed faith." End quote. This is saying that the Reformed faith is not at all threatened by the idea that you should persevere to the end. Nobody should be able to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And God really wants you to persevere, but... Some will, some won't. God just doesn't get everything He wants. And it, it denies the Reformed faith. Listen to what Paul says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that includes our sinful flesh. Even that cannot triumph against us by causing us, as it were, to reject God's grace and fall away. Even our sinful flesh cannot successfully oppose God. He goes on to say God didn't spare His own Son. He gave us His Son. He goes on to say that Christ has died and makes intercession for us so no one can condemn us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He goes on, verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He concludes that nothing, nothing, verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that is not a sure thing, let's just pack it up. Let's pack it up. Pack up the Reformed faith. Pack up Christianity. Pack up the Bible. Because that, if that doesn't mean a sure thing for all who are truly converted, then the Bible has lost its meaning. Finally, I'm going to refer you to some of these things because I, I want to finish up here. He reinterprets the famous words of Matthew 7:21 through 23 where Jesus says to the unconverted, I never knew you. He, you can see in the handout in the quotation, he reinterprets that to mean, you're a false prophet and I never sent you out and commissioned you. Even though that's not how that phrase is typically used. And it's totally foreign to the context, especially if you look at the cross-reference in Luke's gospel, which has nothing to do with false teachers whatsoever. Matthew 13 this gets into some of the exegetical peyote once again. I'm not going to read this. You can read that quotation where he summarizes the views of N.T. Wright and he turns the parable of the sower. I mean, I would put on 3D glasses for this one. I can't even make sense of, uh, of what he's saying here. Right in the middle there, he says, there is nothing speculative here. So I'm going to let you read that. I'm, that's kind of a teaser, but read through that and, and see the kind of interpretation that Doug Wilson thinks will help us read the Bible better. Well, let's come to a conclusion with our final point, number nine. According to Doug Wilson, Jordan's views are fully orthodox and represent only a minor disagreement. Wilson disagrees with Jordan on most of these points, okay? Wilson disagrees with Jordan on most of these points. He makes that clear in the Federal Vision Light or Dark lecture with, with uh, the Q&A with Rich Lusk in 2005. He makes that clear. He does think John 3 is speaking of Israel's corporate regeneration, but he backtracks off of a lot of those things and says things like, well, you can't talk about the plane without talking about the passengers. So he tries to link in individual regeneration there. So let's be fair. Wilson's problem is not that he believes this rubbish, but he presents Jordan's views... As fully orthodox and as a minor disagreement. Listen to Wilson. Quote Jim Jordan's a friend of mine. No problem with his orthodoxy. He's a good guy. His paper, that is on regeneration, is a good example of what I mean by the emphasis of federal vision dark, like an oatmeal stout dark beer. And the concern I have with it is not that I think that Jim has denied things that can't be denied and so everything's lost. I believe he's denying something which, because he's a thoroughgoing predestinarian and committed to the absolute authority of the Word of God, I believe that if someone, you can see he's kind of, uh, his grammar is going all over the place here because in his mind he's probably thinking, what what am I going to say? But he says, I believe that if someone took that view and worked it down the road a bit, after 20 or 30 years of pastoring people, you would have to come up with a word to describe those people that we would currently say are regenerate and currently say are unconverted or unregenerate. So as it stands, I would, if someone pressed me on the points and said, no, Jim denies that these passages that evangelicals use to talk about the new birth, he just denies that they're talking about that at all, I believe that his fundamental commitments commit him to a doctrine of regeneration down the road." End quote. That's totally incoherent. And within that statement he says he's got no problems with the orthodoxy of someone who completely flatly denies the biblical doctrine of personal regeneration. He references the paper and he says I don't think he's denied things that can't be denied. I don't think everything's lost if we take this position which essentially denies perseverance of the saints assurance of salvation that's doug wilson wilson again in that lecture quote i'm not trying to indicate disagreement with federal vision oatmeal stout but it's a difference of emphasis oh really just emphasis He goes on, so whenever I get together with Steve Schlissel or with Rich Lusk or with Steve Wilkins, all the different characters, we talk about it and we come to agreement in about five or ten minutes. But when we're turned loose, we emphasize different things according to our situations, our backgrounds, the ministry in front of us, and so on, end quote. In his so-called apology blog post where he, he distances himself from federal vision in 2007, Wilson says, quote, in the midst of that so-called apology, he says, I would still affirm everything I signed off on in the Federal Vision Statement. You can see in the footnote, Federal Vision Statement says, there are also important areas of disagreement or ongoing discussion among those who are identified as Federal Vision advocates. Some of these areas would include, but not limited to, whether or not the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ As traditionally understood is to be affirmed in its classic form. Some of us affirm this and some do not. Another difference is whether or not personal regeneration represents a change of nature in the person so regenerated. Some of us say yes, while others question whether we actually have such an essence that can be changed." End quote. So they're saying federal vision statement includes people who believe in personal regeneration and people that don't. Now you could say, well, they're just trying to be as inclusive as possible. Well, look at the people they exclude earlier in the statement. Quote, there are many people who should be considered as full and friendly participants in the federal vision conversation who cannot sign this statement even though they might want to because of one or two issues. So here are the issues where they weren't able to relax the statement, right? If you deny regeneration, there's a place for you in the statement. But look at the people that they leave out and they won't flex and they won't be inclusive. Pado communion. So if you deny pado communion, you can't sign the statement if you think that children shouldn't be given communion from infancy. Or say post millennialism. So if you're Joel Beakey and you're an amillennialist, you can't be, you know, they're excluding an amillennialist. They're excluding people for their millennial view, but they're including people who deny personal regeneration. You see the imbalance of reconstruction and federal vision. They, they, they haven't understood the difference between a gnat and a camel. And I'm not underemphasizing eschatology, but I'm just saying in comparison, <laughs> gnats and camels. And, and then finally, Wilson In 2011 contributed a chapter to a feshrift honoring Jordan's teaching and presently promotes his lectures on biblical studies and hermeneutics so this should raise red flags immediately and should cause us to be grateful for the truths that we have the assurance that we have the knowledge that we have that we have passed from death to life read John's gospel Examine yourself, believe on Christ, see His work in your midst, and find peace. Let's pray. Gracious God, You are the God of all grace and all mercy and all comfort. We thank You for the truth of Your gospel. We pray that it would rise and flourish and, as Calvin said, tower unvanquished throughout the world opposing and defeating and conquering all that would oppose it. We pray that you would bring to repentance all who have embraced these lies, these false teachings, that you would bring comfort to those who perhaps are despairing on account of being uh, fed these errors. Feed them with the bread from heaven. Feed them with the Lord Jesus Christ who is for us our strength and our song and has become our salvation. We ask in his name, amen.